Welcome to Indefense Humanity. My name is Ostries Oz Miller. Today we're joined by Dr. Chris Richardson. Chris, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, thank you guys for having me on today. I'm Chris Richardson. I have been a professor and chair of communication studies at Young Harris College for the last uh, almost almost decade. Now I am a senior instructional designer. Uh, I kept my PhD, but I got rid of my uh, professorship. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. And of course, my co-host here is Kylie Johnson, whose microphone is off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm quite sure he will say something eventually. Or not. Khalid? I didn't even observe that it was off. You said something. And then once you did, I was like, ah, maybe it is off. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, Chris, you specialize in communication studies. I always get this wrong. Is it communication without an S or with an S? Well, my colleague, Dr. Hallett, would probably murder you if you use the S. Mm -hmm. I'm not so fussy. But uh, no, basically, the distinction sometimes is that communications is more like marketing, like uh, putting photos and content on the web. So that's a different department than what communication studies communication singular is which is usually like critical media studies interpersonal mm -hmm. studies stuff like that so that tends to be uh communication studies versus communications which is like the more practical stuff but that's not everybody necessarily follows that mm -hmm. excellent excellent and you have several publications a few of which i've read um good things good things only good things and we will talk about one of your most recent publications which i quite like and i like the one before this one as well so it might just be fanboy hour for uh, for me but well thank you i took a film theory class with you mm -hmm. back in the old days i don't know two three years ago it was it was a while yeah. back the good old um, days yeah and <laughs> I learned some interesting things like, so I obviously took philosophy classes in school and I took classes over media with other comm classes. And then the combination of the two with film theory was interesting. Will you tell us a bit about film theory before we dive into the written works? Yeah. I mean, film theory is a pretty diverse, well, communication studies is a pretty diverse field. Com in general, has people from psychology, from political science, from philosophy, from uh, you name it, economics. So anyway, that's already a pretty diverse field. So is cinematic studies or film theory. But um, some of the more interesting questions I like to to look at in that is, is basically, you know, it comes down to what makes what makes a film for starters, because that's mm -hmm. changing with uh, video games. It's changing with the technology we have now. So like, what is a film is the question that I kind of like to ask in that class. And also if we can sort of establish what a film is, what is a good film as opposed to mm. a bad film or a poorly made film. And that can vary depending on, you know, whether you want to look at genre, whether you want to look at technique, whether you want to look at the metaphysical aspects. So it's, it's huge. It's really the way I treat it is as a, a branch of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And as a student, I, I had to be difficult. So I always made a case for, you know, uh, what some might say are objectively bad films or movies. <laughs> yeah, you like to play devil's advocate, I remember. I do, but the thing is, whenever you go hard enough for a bad movie, eventually it starts to seem good. No, no, I disagree. <laughs> if it's objectively bad, if it, if it is failing to um, meet the criteria of what makes at least a decent film, it just isn't a good film. Yeah, what was the film that you made us watch during Halloween when I let students pick? Oh, that was Don't Look Under the Bed. Was it? No, it was a Disney one. No? Was it Halloween Town then? Yeah, Halloween Town. That's what it was. <laughs> I, have, I remember watching that film and wondering. I think that's the time I realized I should not be a professor anymore. <laughs> Congratulations, Oscar. You, you, you single-handedly <laughs> contributed to him. <laughs> Oh my God. No, no. But I, I distinctly remember, maybe it wasn't in class. Maybe it was, were you ever not there someday? And I, I think I had Kristen Lazardi send out an email 
saying that we're still watching a movie and it was don't look under the bed because i remember other students from the class going like yo this movie's trash <laughs> yeah i don't think i was there for that and we and we all watched it and i was like yo i gotta write a paper about this and then i didn't because i was like i'm gonna fail if i write a paper about <laughs> this but no so let's let's i guess dive in on this why is or what makes halloween town in in khalid's case objectively bad but what makes it not good i mean again you there's no real right answer because it's like the more general philosophical question what makes a good life right yes. you can you can come to terms with it however you like i think some of the more popular ones more popular responses to what makes a good film i would say is you know a creative and unique use of the material of the techniques available the technologies mm -hmm. available so if you're doing something that is utterly predictable or that seems cliched because it's been done so much i think that's a good indication of not a good film i think if it challenges people and that doesn't necessarily mean challenging like you know it's difficult to understand but challenges maybe a belief system or a standard interpretation you know some of the best i think dramas are when you empathize with both the victim or what would normally be like a clear victim and uh, a perpetrator and you you start to wonder like well who is the victim or who is the perpetrator and you know it complicates things i think that could be a marker of a good film um, but again, if you're dealing with a comedy, then, you know, if it makes you laugh, it's probably a good film. So it really mm -hmm. depends on, on certain criteria. But once you narrow it down by, by genre, by uh, whatever limitations, then I think you can start to make an argument. And I think mm -hmm. that argument okay. will usually end with um, that being a shit film that we watched. <laughs> so interestingly <laughs> enough, you, you made the statement about, you know, being able to sympathize with you know, the situations of particular characters. And I immediately went to Todd Phillips' Joker, um, I guess, to mm. bring it in to discussing your book. Um, and thinking about Todd Phillips' Joker, I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on, on that film, you know, kind of use it as the point to segue yeah. in. Yeah, you know, I used to, you know, for a long time, try to write, try to get as much, you know, publications or presentations under my belt as I could as a young scholar. And so it actually just, it really hurts me to think about that because I, I was I was going to be on a, uh, in a book, a collected book on uh, the Joker and I had this uh, chapter plan, but then with uh, my change of career and stuff, I had to say no to that project. So mm -hmm. I actually do, I have a chapter in my head that I never wrote about the Joker because I think it is an amazing film, but basically what I was going to argue, uh, and this was, uh, you know, during the time I was thinking about Batman and the Joker when I was writing my book called Batman and the Joker. Uh, the book subtitle is uh, Contested Sexuality in Popular Culture. But for the book on the Joker, my contrib contribution was going to be about how it plays with genre because you think it's a, a sort of, well, you think it's a thriller and it might be, you think it's a comedy sort of with, you know, jokers in general and, and comedy. Um, but it, it's very conscious, it's hyper-conscious of itself as a film. Todd Phillips wanted to make a like a popular film enough so that he would get a good budget if you listen mm -hmm. to his interviews, some of them, but he didn't want to make a crappy like superhero movie. And so it really has nothing to do with superheroes other than the fact that it's related to the Batman franchise. Mm -hmm. So what he did was he, he took this film and he's like, you know, for producers, I'm going to make you another superhero film. So they're like, okay, here's a few million dollars or whatever. So mm -hmm. he took that and then he made a sort of almost an art film, uh, which is, to me, at least, is an amazing feat to to uh, allow yourself that kind of flexibility. Like he really did a 180, I think, from what I, I understand on like how he pitched it, and then how, what he actually did. So he basically got the money for a DC film, mm -hmm. but then made an art house film to some extent. Mm -hmm. And um, and so yeah, it's a really cool film that plays with genre. I really, I wanted to focus in on when the Joker, for example, is in the theater, uh, the cinema, and they're watching Chaplin films and all mm -hmm. of these elite are laughing at this guy who was really a working man's uh idol like he represented a, a working class ethic and he was very critical of these like pompous assholes who are actually now in the film watching him and laughing probably more at him than with him and mm -hmm. uh, that to me is what the joker is all about is like who's laughing at whom who's empathizing with whom because you know he's the star that joaquin phoenix's character the joker is the star of the film but he's also not a good person, obviously, like he's a murderer, among other things. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it it's such an interesting um, pivot every time, which embodies the Joker exactly as a trickster, uh, which is something I write about in my book, right? It's not, he can't be pinned down. So as soon as you think this is a comedy, it gets deadly serious. As soon as you think this is a uh, drama, there's some actual really funny moments and, and things like that. So uh, yeah, I, I thought the Joker was a great film that is a perfect film for when it came out during the Trump era. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And your your book does discuss the contested sexuality, of course, as it is in, in the title. But I was speaking with someone before we had this interview and they were saying that they read in, I don't know, they, they mentioned a comic book that they were reading and it was like, isn't there implication that Batman and the Joker might be brothers? And I was like, I, I've never read this. And I was like, that would be extremely strange. Yeah, I mean, it. It one of the main things I like, and that I think it really is a a perfect film for for the Trump era of you know false fake news and miscommunication and and uh, and things like that, where it's hard to know what's real because we're getting bombarded with with lies, with crazy mm-hmm. people, with deception. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, they never really explain it, which is something the Joker often is is like a character that isn't ex- fully explained which i think is you know why he's so appealing because you can keep reading into him it's not set mm-hmm. but um but yeah they have this idea i mean if you haven't watched the joker and you really want to first of all you should have watched it already but secondly i just wanted to <laughs> that kind of but um he uh he is convinced at some point that his mother had an affair with bruce wayne's father right mm-hmm. thomas mm-hmm. wayne mm-hmm. and so if that's the case and he is the baby, the product of that, then he would be assuming that, you know, Thomas Wayne is the legit father of Bruce Wayne as well, Mm -hmm. which seems, Mm -hmm. you know, less contested, then he would be, they would be effectively uh, stepbrothers. But, um, but it's also implied that she was, you know, delusional and had Mm -hmm. no relationship with him. And so they don't, you know, there's that small possibility. I don't think it's a, it's a serious possibility, but um, there is that idea like, well, maybe they are brothers and that would explain a few things too. Also, mm-hmm. that's the one thing I don't like in terms of the Batman mythos and this uh, film is that they make the Joker effectively like 20 years or 30 years older than Bruce Wayne, which to me doesn't mm-hmm. make a lot of sense overall. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, like so he could be brothers. He could not be brothers. He could be uh, sort of related. He could not. They could be in other versions, lovers, or they could not yeah. be lovers. Like there's um, there's a lot at play. And that's that's part of why they're interesting. I I have heard very good arguments like I've mentioned your book to several people and they were like, well, it would explain a lot, like how you could let someone run rampant in your city and not just, you don't have to kill them if that violates your morality, even though you might be a fascist and frequently beat up people because they're poor and they rob people and leave them hanging for the police in skid row. Hmm. But I mean, that's an oversimplification. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But you could at least throw them in an, an underground prison, like, not like a normal, you know, we don't support the prison industrial complex, but Damian Wayne does that and it's it's probably it's probably comparable to what the actual prison <laughs> industrial complex does. But he gets out. He gets out of everything. You you've yeah. sent this man to Arkham numerous times. Yeah, you sent this man working. to prison. And he he gets out. Not only does he get out, but whenever he gets out, he's converted guards and nurses into his people. <laughs> yeah. It's still, it's clearly not working. But I agree with you. I think uh, the the prison industrial system or, or the complex that is actually an issue in the U- United States, among other countries, is uh, is not going to solve it either. Mm-hmm. I think to the to the, like the the point of their relationship and Batman kind of almost working as an enabler. They both enable like each other, right? And so mm-hmm. I guess my f- probably favorite piece of or I guess favorite piece of Batman media that highlights um, this particular relationship is probably Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. This kind of codependence on each other. And, you know, even in that pure symbolism of them fighting in the tunnel of love, you know, definitely mm-hmm. heightening that commentary on their relationship to each other. Um, I know that you mentioned in your book explicitly about Joker having um, particular um, gay codings, right? Or queer codings. Mm-hmm with the lipstick, with the kind of flamboyant nature that is kind of put on him, right? And so there's the, like, it's almost probably at its most explicit within that story. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Yeah, and he dies at the end, the Joker, but not exactly by Batman's hand. But that's that's the end of Batman. Like that's over. It's over now. Like if you follow that storyline, I know other things happen, and uh, you could argue that it's not over. But I think that the idea, which is similar in the Killing Joke, if you listen to like Grant Morrison's interpretation of mm-hmm. it, where he mm-hmm. thinks the Joker's dead, and you know Batman's broken his moral code that that's the end of batman too so if he were to kill the joker for real like in in, in like a legit story then you wouldn't have batman anymore just uh, you can't have batman without the joker and you can't have the joker without batman so in that case they're very much like lovers even if it's not you know traditional sexual love it's uh it's definitely a codependence that uh you know in the same way that white people can't exist without black people because mm-hmm. the the nature of race, the the mm-hmm. way that it's been created, is that you need to be able to point to somebody and be like, "That's not white," so that you can say you're white, or mm-hmm. vice versa, mm-hmm. right? And so that's not to say people wouldn't exist or like the you know person wouldn't exist, but the way that it's constructed in terms of American race or American gender, you need at least the way that we've set it up. And I mean, we by the mass culture, not any of us individually here long (laughs) before us Mm -hmm. but um yeah you need men and women because without women you don't have men without men you don't have women you need black people with uh for white to have white people and vice versa and um batman and the joker are just part of that like they need each other to define themselves as batman and the joker Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so in writing this book right what was the motivation for your research what pushed you to um follow into this kind of path of study i guess yeah i mean i got it just happened sort of that it was a great opportunity like i obviously am you know in engaged with certain people with certain academic societies and stuff like that so you see calls for papers you see ideas floating around for conferences and topics and so literally you know i do my podcast this is not a pipe podcast and Mm -hmm. i Mm -hmm. i can't remember at what point but i had started talking with uh, Frederick Colhert, who wrote a cool book about biography and comics, like autobiography and autobiographical writing in comics uh, called Serial Selves. And so he was putting together a collection or, or trying to put together as like early stages about gender and comics. And I just, I literally, I think I saw a tweet from him. And within like five minutes, I was like, Claudia, my wife, wouldn't it be funny or not funny, but wouldn't it be cool if I did this thing about Batman and the Joker, and that could fit into this gender and sexuality and comics essay that he's looking for. Uh, so I sent him like a, a quick proposal. He liked it. And then I just, you know, went nuts with all this stuff I'd been learning for like, uncon- sort of unconsciously learning for like at least 10 years, probably at least 20 years, really, of reading comics, of watching Batman films and stuff. So it all kind of like nothing in my academic life ever came together as easily as that book because. I had been studying it since I was like four years old, trying to sneak into the Tim Burton film. This might be a 180, but I remember we've talked a few times, probably not as much as Claudia and I have talked about Franz Fanon and his Mm -hmm. sort of problematic Antian views about sexuality. In I only came here because we're talking about uh, Batman, Joker, as well as black not being able to exist without white in the notion, you mm-hmm. know, of comparison. And Franz Fanon says the white man's fear of the black man comes from a place of sexual repression of oneself, the fear that they are not good enough. But more than this, the fear that one day the black will achieve a semblance of similarity, at which case they have not superseded them, but it is the same. Because if you're higher than someone and they reach equity with you, then you're no longer in control of the situation. You have to act amicably towards the person you once saw as dirt. And this is like the wretched of the earth, uh, black skin, white mask. Yeah, I mean... I think you you totally see that uh you know where where the school is that we all met is in rural Georgia. We see this I to me most clearly with sort of republican messaging and poor white people in particular because the whole way that the Republican party is able to get those voters who gain nothing economically with Republicans and you, you know have no 
no logical, it makes no logical sense to me. And I never really understood it until I started thinking this um, uh, sort of intersectional lens Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what's going on. Like, you know, how do these rich white men primarily get people on board with their, um, their policies when they clearly don't help them, right? They want to take away healthcare. They want to do all this stuff that's like basically, you know, hurting mm-hmm. them, at the very least hurting them. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you do that? You do it by pointing to somebody like uh, queer people, like uh, African-Americans, like somebody who you can other. Mm-hmm. And you say that, look, we're, you know, we're the same because we're white or we're men or we're straight. And these are the people that you have to worry about. And these are the people who are, you know, Democrats or who are whatever. And so it does intersect with this fear that, yeah, like, you may be poor, you may be white, but at least you're not black. At and least poor. you're not gay. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah. And you're, you're, you're designed to think as if like you being a poor white person is the same as me being a rich white person because we're white. Right. So at least you're not black. Those are the others that you need to worry about. Um, and that happens with gender. It happens with sexuality. It happens obviously with race. But um, these are discourses that are all about this fear that like, yeah, look, I have no virtually no power, but I'm going to put my Confederate flag out. I'm going to show people that I'm more impressive than these other races or whatever the case is. Um, and that's how you get people on board mm-hmm. your, with your messaging when your your policy is garbage for, for these people in particular. Like unless you're trying to save millions of dollars in taxes, like theoretically, I can understand you voting Republican, but poor white people i've never been able to understand it the only explanation really is is racism right because you can say like we're the we're the same because you're different fana is very aware of that dynamic as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah what is it the assimilation through mimicry which are of course homie baba's words not uh mm. fanon's but it's but built like, on that yeah yeah inspired yeah. by Fanon for sure absolutely it's like you can build up you know you could be a congolese dandy or a Martinican, uh, go to go to school at the Sorbonne, uh, you know, just build mm-hmm. up all of this social status, come back home, and now you have uh, folie à deux, right? Uh, a shared, a shared insanity amongst your people that oh, he's come back to the community with money, with education, he's going to help us. You begin to speak, and now you speak like the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Not only that. But you're like, oh, these people don't understand. They're so ignorant. They had the opportunity to learn like I did. Now now I have no respect for them, my own family. They've done nothing with their lives. You started to internalize the coding and the messaging of the oppressor into yourself. And you believe that you are the exception to the rule of being this minority group. So then you come into like a parlor with uh, the, the oppressive communities, right? So you'll have like, uh, the Antian come into the to to speak with, uh, let's say a Beke, a French Islander, and then it's like ah oh, he speaks he speaks well you know they have a little conversation and it's mm-hmm. like ah for a black you're you're, you're yeah. pretty smart for a black and it's like mm-hmm. at that moment the defacement happens uh, to use words of Goffman, and then you realize I am I have black skin. But mm-hmm. I'm wearing the white mask. I look in the mirror and I'm alienated by myself. Mm-hmm. And I feel that is what also happened with Joker, that he didn't necessarily snap. And we have these versions where people say he's hyper sane as well, that he sees mm-hmm. the truth behind and death doesn't really matter. Neither does destruction because they're, everyone's roaming around not knowing what they're doing anyways. But you, you look at yourself and you realize I've been wearing this mask forever why not tear it off and just mm. be what I want to be, just be who I am? It's interesting yeah. that you bring that up, um, especially considering these um, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo run, where he literally goes to Dollmaker and has his face removed and then wears mm-hmm. that face as a mask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Dollmaker episode is is such a perfect... Well, on some level, it's like literal. He, he rips off his face. But on another level, it can it can be read through Fanon and these other ideas where, yeah, Goffman as well, we're putting on a face for others. Um, that's one of the more interesting things, I think, you know, that I was trying to explore in the book is that both, I argue at least, and I'm open to people disagreeing, but I think Batman slash Bruce Wayne 
understands very well, pays very close attention to social conventions, as does the Joker. The difference is that Bruce Wayne kind of says to Robin and to others, you know, we need to follow these conventions to the extent that they let us do these things in the world, right? They let us, you know, roam in high society so that we can have the resources that we can do things for Gotham City or whatever, right? Whereas the Joker says, effectively, I see exactly how these things work and I'm going to break them, or at least I'm not going to follow them, which is almost the same thing. Like you show that they don't exist in a real way, that they're make-believe, things like race, things like gender, um, and you play with them, which is very disconcerting to people who rely on them. Uh, especially sort of unconsciously because you bring it to their consciousness. So this idea of wearing a mask becomes more of an issue um, when he literally like wears a mask, uh, wears a mask, but it also relates to more social issues that I think are, are when comics like Batman become a little bit more maybe important is when we realize like they're tied to these really, really big things that have sometimes life or death consequences for the people that are involved. Isn't it interesting, um, you know, within Todd Phillips' Joker, right, the the explicit kind of class um, class analysis, right, um, even though Joker is kind of pushing forward this kind of revolution, right, um, this kind of this kind of class warfare, um, the film would present, or you know, you could infer from the film that he is not entirely um like he's not really consciously inciting this you know Mm -hmm. this uh, class warfare is simply a byproduct of him um you know kind of either liberating himself from you know the shackles of society or um falling you know falling deeper into this kind of psychosis and Mm -hmm. so you know he's not even like explicitly trying to facilitate a class revolution but you know he's not mad about it happening either yeah, I mean, I focus, or I focus, or I quote the philosopher Michel Foucault more than anyone in the book mm-hmm. because he was a real influence to my thinking in that book and in general. But he basically says that you can't separate this idea of insanity from social convention and from the mm-hmm. knowledge, quote Absolutely. unquote, knowledge that we have. Yeah. So as soon as you question or break with social convention, you're by definition in our society insane. And that's not to say that he's, you know, actually not insane and that he we should follow his lead, like that character's lead, because, you know, among other things, he's a murderer. But it is to say that as soon as you break these conventions, you are going to be insane. There's no getting around that because the, that the conventions allow us to say who is sane or not. So if you break them, you're insane, even if arguably, you know, you had good reason or whatever the case is. Um, so there's really no getting around that until you really understand that power and knowledge go together. And that you, if you have the power to say what knowledge is, then you also, by definition, have the knowledge. And um, that's kind of what the Joker hurts. That is that idea that this is all objective and uh, that it all makes sense because he really, you know, I mean, he throws a wrench into everything. But I think mm-hmm. also the the class warfare issue with the Todd Phillips movie is interesting because, again, you have to read it as intersectional. There's like these guys on the train are assholes. Um, these guys that kind of like um, harass a young woman and the Joker ends up shooting them. And they're also, uh, I think, uh, like stockbrokers or something like they're in the financial sector. And so you get this sense that people hated these people, or at least the Joker says something like, you know, good riddance or whatever, mm-hmm. because they were in the financial sector making poor people poor ostensibly and rich people richer. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But they're also, um, you know, just uh, using their sort of whiteness in order to gain privilege and to, uh, you know, bother people. And they're using their gender in order to, you know, try to show dominance over this woman. And so there's all these different factors that go into play in that. And that's why the Joker character can be either really powerful because, you know, he calls into question these things, but also really dangerous in the sense that um, he can be interpreted in different ways, right? Like the people's, the people storming the White House, which to me, I watched it before and after the, I watched the Joker before and after that, um, the insurrection in, uh, that happened recently. And I, it's amazing how you can see it as the same thing that they're talking about with these protests in the film and the protests we see even though the film was made first because it's it's attaching itself 
in different ways, right? So some people might see that as, you know, saving America. Other people see it as destroying American democracy. Both are sort of true and not true at the same time. And that's kind of how the Joker works, right? Like maybe he's fighting for class um, or for the end of one class oppressing another, or maybe he's not, and he's actually focused on something else. And it, the people protesting in Gotham and and the people protesting in America uh, would probably answer that question very differently. And that's mm-hmm. why everything's ambiguous, and it's all about spin, which is again why it's a perfect movie for now. I think that's interesting, mm-hmm. um, particularly with the protest angle. Um, thinking back to the summer, and even in the even in the Capitol over the summer, there were people that would show up in like cosplay to some of these protests there is a particular batman cosplayer that i'm aware of that was basically converting these protests into glorified photo ops and then you know after marching with black lives matter and getting his pictures he would go and deliver gatorade to the police department um and then there were people that would show up to some of these protests markedly white people and they show up in like Joker cosplay, you know, kind of hoping that things did get a little, um, a little less nonviolent, right? Hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure there were people in Joker cosplay at the, um, at the White House, or at the White House, at the Capitol building. Um, and so I just I found that to be kind of really interesting as far as like people taking these these symbols, right, and kind of imbuing on them um whatever personal ideology or belief or even bastardizing them from um ideology and belief um, represented through these kind of long-standing comic book runs yeah and you can kind of pick and choose which is part of the difficulty i mean it makes it interesting because you can pick and choose how you're going to interpret things but it also makes it sort of i don't know how we would call it dangerous because uh, I mean, one of the main symbols that you see frequently, and there's been stuff written about this, is uh, the Punisher symbol on uh, like police in, in police precincts and mm-hmm. police officers, you know, wearing a Punisher shirt or whatever. And I mean, so what are you saying about the Punisher? Are you saying that you're going to kill people indiscriminately like the Punisher does when he's angry, sort of, or which doesn't seem very fitting for a police officer? Or are you saying that, you know, you're going to punish criminals, which I think is what they're sort of going for. But if you are going to punish criminals, are you going to do it as a vigilante who is notoriously violent? Or are you going to do it in a, in a different way? Like, how come the Punisher is such a, a fixed entity, that symbol, in a lot of police and military, uh, you know, unofficial uniform type stuff? That becomes a problem because, I, I mean, I, I see it sort of as like, okay, well, these are definitely people that I wouldn't trust to, like, um, be fair and just and serve all people if they're using the Punisher uh, symbol. But again, maybe it means something different to them. I'm sure they would say something otherwise. Same with Batman and the Joker, right? Like, um, what exactly are you latching onto with Batman or the Joker? Is it, uh, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't say the queer significations of the Joker if they're going to dress as Joker, but then maybe some are. You know, I see, it's funny you say the protests. I also always think of Batman as a fig, as a fixed almost figure, uh, the clothing or, or reference somehow in mm-hmm. almost every pride parade, you'll see Batman or Robin or uh, symbols of them, right? In mm-hmm. marching. And so I, again, the person who's wearing a Batman symbol and who's marching on the Capitol in an insurrection and the person who's wearing it on, on marching down the street during pride probably has very different interpretations of what that symbol means to them. But again, it sort of works because of the, the long history of these symbols. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that leads me to the question of face work. I believe it's Goffman, not Garfinkel. So Garfinkel yeah, believes yeah. that we play these roles, but it's not like a play. It's not just a game that we can leave because if we leave, which leads into Foucault, of course, and back into Batman and Joker, is that if we don't play these roles, according to Garfinkel, if I'm not wrong, it's been a while, but we are deemed incapable of interacting correctly with society in a way that does not slow down productivity, which is why we use terms for people on the autism spectrum in the US and Canada, like high functioning, low functioning, even mm. that's even though that's not on any like psychological or mental health scales 
because it's someone who can work in a factory or someone who needs assistance, who is a hindrance on the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, please. No, I just uh, like yeah. Go ahead. I'm I'm more familiar with Goffman, who I've read, than uh, Garfinkel. I haven't read as much, but definitely the idea of a presentation of self is something that uh, is assumed that there's a you know front stage, backstage, and that's one of the key differences with some something a little later in terms of when the theories came out, like Judith Butler, Michel Foucault as well. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and definitely my inspiration for the Batman book was um, was more sort of post structuralist where. There's no backstage, like the idea that there's a backstage is still part of the front stage, right? So the idea that mm-hmm. you're putting on a persona, like you're trying to be uh, masculine or whatever, doesn't mean that underneath you really are, or you're not and you're yes. lying to yourself. Like there is no backstage real one, like there's just turtles all the way down, right? Like you never mm-hmm. get to the end. And um, that's uh, a little different than Goffman's idea of like, we're acting our roles, which um, mm-hmm. is a much more like conscious idea of you know the real you and then the face you present to the world absolutely yeah there's distinction there but it's not i don't think there's i don't think there's a real you underneath right there's just more you Mm -hmm. yes that's that's why so garfinkel and and foucault and even even other theorists why i whenever i watch art films i immediately think of someone like um harold garfinkel because you see the person who is pretending to be a different person around their friends. But even when they go back home, usually there's a mirror scene and they look at themselves and then they break down because they know they're not even who they are to themselves. So it's like, even if we were to use front stage backstage, the front stage is a, is a play that's unsustainable. It's like some face work that, that cannot be sustained for durations of time, but whenever they come back, they're backstage, but they're still actors who have to be ready to go uh, back into the play that is life. So it's like they never get a break from pretending to be something or someone they're not. Yeah, I mean, just I think that's one of those reasons that people love Batman as an example, not not the only reason, but the the simple explanation that you might give a kid, right, is that Batman is uh, pretend or it's front stage. Bruce Wayne is the real person underneath. But then, you know, anyone who reads those comics knows that it's much more complicated than that. And some of the things I play with is the idea of, um, you know, like if Batman and Bruce Wayne are both sort of front stage or or, uh, performing, they're both performing, Mm -hmm. then what else is there? And then, like I said, my answer is that there's nothing under. And I think on some level, we all kind of can, can at least appreciate that, if not agree with it, which is what makes it interesting to read about their adventures, Batman's in particular, but also you could apply this to a lot of masked superheroes. I've done some talks uh, with a trans woman who, uh, Diana, who takes her name from Wonder Woman and mm-hmm. has um, has really found a connection, at least in the way that she sees the trans community and superheroes, which is also a passion of hers. And it's because of this issue of like, what's the real you? What are you presenting to the world? What's underneath? And um, I mean, in general, I mean, whether you're a trans person or whether you're someone who th- who you think is like, I don't know, super normal or something, which I don't mm-hmm. think anyone really thinks, mm-hmm. is um, it speaks to the way that we operate in the world. And much like, you know, Goffman or Foucault or anyone was interested, Batman on some level helps us do that too. And the Joker. Mm-hmm. I was so happy to see Diana's coming out. And, you know, it was really great, you know, you to amplify it. Um, on your podcast and in recording it that was was really really great i also think about this idea right because i'm pretty sure you mentioned in the book something to the effect about batman settling down or looking to settle down and like kind of showing this kind of like true face after all these different stints of performing masculinity and performing heteronormativity right you know doing it because that's what society was looking for him to do um Mm -hmm. And then I think there was like this one individual that you mentioned where, you know, you saw underneath the two generally presented masks and saw or wondered what Batman or this character wanted for themselves underneath what they present on both fronts. Yeah, I mean, it it goes, that's why we haven't talked about it so much, but it was, uh, you know, an inspiration for Fanon as well as a psychoanalytic framework that looks at desire 
not as again you might when you first introduce to these things as you know words when you're learning english or whatever a desire is just something you want right but when you really figure out sort of the psychoanalytic framework desire is actually something that makes you who you are and that cannot ever be achieved and so even if for example you find the love of your life there's still you never really have him or her there's always this uh distance between you and your desire um and so, but that's what makes you. And so I say that t t in that way, Batman desires the Joker, the Joker desires Batman because they both can't have each other. Like, so Batman's always chasing the Joker, but if he ever really achieved uh, whatever it is that we think he wants, right? Like to capture the Joker, put him away, not kill him, but prevent him from doing any more damage. Batman, you know, you can't, you can't imagine Batman waking up later in the day and uh you know being rested and being like hmm, what should i do today like it just doesn't he's not batman anymore and so that's an example that we don't you know we don't live those lives but we have the same thing like if you if you get whatever you want then you instantly want something else mm -hmm. and that's sort of how desire works and how it makes you who you are right you keep acting the way you are because of this desire that you're following catwoman i talk about too right like yeah they they both get together but they can't stay together because it's over like Batman marries Catwoman or Selena Kyle and you know, they, they live happily ever after like fine if that's what you want to do, but then it's over. That's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. And that's not how life works, right? Either they will have a new challenge. Like, you know, the Joker will come and steal one of them from the other or something. And then they can keep desiring each other because they've been separated again or nothing happens. And um, it's not a story. And mm -hmm. so, that's what happens. Yeah, there's this this desire for the other, and in some cases, Batman again, Batman's desire, not necessarily sexually, but his desire mm -hmm. to satisfy his need to like put the Joker away, makes him Batman. And so the Joker can't be the Joker if Batman is satisfied, and vice versa. It's really interesting, right? Like the only kind of instances where you know you kind of see some level of fulfillment and there are multiple kind of elseworld stories that kind of revolve around this idea right where batman can't win like if, if and presented for kind of interesting story premises it's generally the joker winning right and you get these kinds of interesting takes on the joker winning probably the longest running kind of take on this is the batman who laughs mm. and this idea that even still, the Joker doesn't necessarily win, right? You know, Batman kills the Joker and then becomes this Batman-Joker hybrid that mm -hmm. um, kind of is the ultimate kind of desire of the Joker for Batman to kind of see where he is, like see where he's coming from, right? To have the Joker's perspective on life, the kind of challenge of the killing joke you know, an invitation mm -hmm. deeper into insanity. Yeah, actually, I need to read that. It's one that I haven't really read is uh, Batman Who Laughs. But I definitely see how you, you basically get these sort of one-offs or these side stories that are not canon that are either sort of apocalyptic mm -hmm. or they're utopian. But yeah, they're not designed to last in terms of the Batman mythos. They're not designed to... Uh, it is just a what if, right? which I sort of say something like that in the book, building on the work of Ramsey Fawaz, who's another great uh, queer mm -hmm. studies mm -hmm. scholar and comic scholar. But um, basically, yeah, you used to have comics and they were the one-offs. Like, wh what if the world were different and people had superpowers? But now they've established their own norms to the point where it's not, what if Superman existed? It's, what if Superman turned bad and was actually Russian or whatever the case, right? Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. have these one-offs that um, allow us to further explore, but they're always just, they're like daydreams, right? They're not they're not meant to take over in the same way that if you got whatever you wanted, you could daydream like, Oh, if I won the million dollar lottery or something, I would do this and that and I'd be happy. But if you actually won the million dollar lottery or something, you would be like either I need $5 million now, or you would set your mind on something else. And so suddenly, mm -hmm. suddenly money wouldn't be an issue for you. So that thing that you're striving for is no longer part of you. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that's how these kind of these stories that are not, like part of the main canon, I think fit within that. It's like they give us something to daydream about because we're used to what Batman does. But um, but yeah, they're not meant to like finish the story. That's mm -hmm. what it can't happen. Comics can't finish. If they do, they're they're over. Like uh, you can't conclude a story without having a, a next issue. 
or else Batman dies for real mm -hmm. in like in the in the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. So I think I have one final question, and it arises from you mentioning what if Superman was bad and was Russian, so Red Sun. Mm -hmm. My my question is: Is Superman and Red Sun considered bad? Obviously, because he's communist, but. Is it deeper than that, that he's controlled by the the state, like by the government? Because Superman in America is not necessarily a pure capitalist, but mm -hmm. I think he holds to his morals. And the only reason he can do that is because he was not found by the U.S. military. Otherwise, he would be the same exact character as Red Sun Superman, except in red, white, and blue instead of red and gray. I mean, even in Red Sun, uh, he's not necessarily wholly mm -hmm. bad. Like, sure, he antagonizes um, characters kind of fighting against the corruption of, you know, Stalin's um, kind of dictatorship, right? Mm -hmm. But um, you see Superman, you see this Superman still holding to the ideals of wanting what's best for everyone. However, mm -hmm. the issue mm -hmm. within this representation of Superman is that, you know, there are some rose-tinted glasses as far as what's going on with um, Stalin's leadership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, I mean, to go full circle into what we talked about earlier about what might make a good film, right? I, I think one of the things that makes a great film or story more generally is when the, uh, the taken for granted good guy, bad guy dynamic or whatever is questioned to the point where maybe you do empathize more for the quote unquote bad guy, or you question whether the um, perpetrator is actually a victim. And, you know, you, these things become a little bit more ambiguous. I think that's why Red Sun is a popular sort of spinoff or one-off of the, of the Superman Batman story. I think, mm -hmm. uh, comics in general like the good ones so the, the ones i would deem good always have that element of questioning because yeah exactly like we see that we make these assumptions that we don't ever question until we're shown an alternative right so in the past if you want to go back to gender and sexuality and stuff the assumption is straight is good gay is bad mm -hmm. that's so obvious we don't need to even explain it to anybody except what if we see these representations of actually like good queer people, which we still don't get very much, but we get more mm -hmm. of. That makes us hopefully at least question this idea from before uh, in our culture that this, these are clearly good or bad people, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing if Superman landed not in the US, but in the USSR and did basically everything the same, would he be a good or bad person? And I mean, if you follow this simplistic and basically stupid line that, you know, anything that we deem communist is bad, anything mm -hmm. that we deem American is good. I don't think any any thoughtful American knows that just because you say it's American or patriotic doesn't mean it's good. But mm -hmm. th those are the simple models. Right. And so that storyline makes you really question where you actually draw the line or what you actually believe because before you didn't have to question it, Superman's good, he's an American. But if Superman's not an American, does that mean Superman is not good? Or does that mean America is not as good as we think it is? Like, it can't really be both if America and Superman split and go in opposite directions in this story, right? I think that's what makes it such a compelling uh, narrative. And that's why the best Batman stories, the best comics in general, the best movies have this element that may show you an alternative, like a dramatically alternative universe, like in a sci-fi, or it may just be like a subtle difference where you're made to empathize more with somebody that you don't normally. I think mm -hmm. that's where it becomes really powerful in terms of the society, the culture, more generally, is when these things happen. So yeah, we always assume Superman is good and he's American, and therefore we don't question those things. But as soon as you take away that Americanness, uh, then you have to question, well, what about his what about his geography makes him good or bad like what values do i place on geography that you may never have thought about before reading that comic for example um that's what i think the best comics do and that's why i try to focus on what i think are some of the best comics because they really make us question ourselves the way we live the way we act and um, that's really where i see value in them and where i see sort of more liberating views more more social justice if it's done right if it's done in a in a thoughtful way absolutely and that i do believe brings us to the end of our conversation chris is there anything you would like to 
tell us about before you go ten app this is not a pipe yeah. podcast this is not a pipe podcast you should check it out i am i have a few more episodes this season and then i'm going on hiatus for the summer as i normally do and i'll have to honestly decide if i'm i love doing it but i'm also going to be a lot busier with this new role um mm -hmm. that i'm taking on as an instructional designer but yeah i want to say that um you know today before i just spoke to you guys i was actually looking through some of my pictures of um yhc the college that we met at and the students i've worked with and stuff like that just thinking back over my almost a decade now and honestly the best part about my last decade the work that i've done is talking to you guys talking to people like you like seeing students who go off and do cool things even if those are very different things from you know your the podcast that you're making mm -hmm. like i love that i love to see where you guys are going and the great things that you're doing and as whenever i'm around in rural georgia seeing confederate flags and stuff like that i think <laughs> <laughs> it sounds bad as i'm saying that i'm like fuck that's not that's not what i mean but no i think about how how stupid or how bad people can be and then I think about how good you guys are, how great my experience was with students that are, you know, thoughtful and that are clearly going to go out into the world and do amazing things. So please just keep doing that. You keep inspiring me and I'm very happy to, uh, to hear from you guys and to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Khalid, do you have any final thoughts, any questions for Chris before we let him go? Um, I'd just like to thank you so much for coming out and doing this. Um, you were definitely one of the highlights of my experience at Young Harris, and I'm grateful to have known you and to know you. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I've been reminding people I'm not going to die or anything. <laughs> uh, I'm just getting a new job. That's uh, actually it's going to be good. But anyway, no, I, I really appreciate that, and it is those those connections and those those conversations that I hope we started in cinema class or wherever we might have met, but that continue even if I'm not part of it. They continue and we go out and you go out and um, yeah, just continue having good conversations and thinking critically and not falling for bullshit that we see all around us. It makes me so happy to see that when you guys are, you know, just continuing thoughtful conversations, whatever that might look like. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure.